most of y'all know that before God called me here to CBC, uh, I got to serve on staff at a church in the Woodlands, Texas. And uh, my house was like less than three miles from the giant ExxonMobil campus that they built up there in North Houston. And uh, while we were in, in Houston, I got to know a few guys who were starting their careers out at, at Exxon. And as you can imagine, maybe you've worked in the industry and you know how things like that go. Uh, it's a pretty intense work environment. And uh, they were in different segments of the company, accountants. One guy um, booked the giant tankers that moves crude all over the world. And uh, another guy was an engineer. But each of them went through a similar process when they started their job. Now, even though they had gone through a college degree and internships, some of them had actually done their internship at Exxon, they still had to go through this, they call it an onboarding process, where you have to get acclimated to the work environment. Now at Exxon, that means, and I'm sure at other similar companies, Exxon though, in doing this research to try to make sure I had on my facts straight, do you know they're the second largest company in America by revenue uh, in 2018. And since like the 30s, they've had the, seventh, the, the title of seventh largest oil refiner in the world. So a pretty big deal, you know, y'all know Exxon, we have one here in Exxon Station, so a big deal. And so this onboarding process, they take these guys and they do a rotation where they move them through different segments of the job so they get to understand all the different inner workings of the, the company, the different jobs people do. And of course, they go through this orientation process where they learn the values and culture of the company. The thing that despite people leaving all the time, new people coming, the company stays the same because there are these ingrained values that are passed on from one generation of employee to the next. And they have to learn these things. And I never quite experienced that. It may, may be a surprise to you, but you know, most churches don't have HR departments that take you by the hand and shuttle you through the inner workings of the church and the culture, the processes, nothing like that. You know, you're just kind of thrown to the wolves. And uh, I definitely felt that. In fact, the closest I ever came to experiencing a corporate onboarding was the first day at my job in 11th grade. I was working at a swimming pool store and my boss asked me if I knew how to hook up a trailer. And I did not. I said, no, I don't know that. And he said, what's your dad been teaching you? He said, come with me, and he drove me to his farm, and we hooked up a trailer, and we brought it back to the shop. And that was my onboarding to Pioneer Pool Company. But I bring all this up because it's actually a pretty apt illustration and metaphor for what each of us goes through as we become a Christian. You know, Paul in Ephesians 1 through 3 has described some of these objective realities of the Christian life. They are true of you, whether you feel it or not. That you're loved by the Father, chosen from before time began. That you've been predestined to adoption as his sons. That though you were dead in your sins, you've been raised with Christ. You've been seated with him in the heavenly places. You have new life in Jesus. Not only that, but you have been united to every other Christian who's ever lived in every place as part of Christ's body, the church. Those are objective realities of every Christian who trusts in Christ. But then there's this onboarding process where if these objective truths are real, somehow our lives have to be brought into alignment and consistency with what those facts actually are. We have to be onboarded into what it means to be a Christian. And part of what D Paul does in Ephesians 4 through 6 is provide the orientation and onboarding 
for these Christians, helping them understand what those objective realities look like lived out in ancient Ephesus or in modern America. And so last week, at the end of chapter 3, we saw this intercessory prayer where Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family on heaven and earth is named. And he asks this prayer. Lord, please, I'm paraphrasing, Lord, please take all these truths that I've just described under the inspiration of your spirit in Ephesians 1 through 3 and help them go into their head, help them believe it, help them to know it, and help them live it out. And I told you, he, it's like he knew that unless God got in the mix, everything he had to tell them was going to just go off into the air. It was going to be lost. would have no impact. But of course, he did pray. And of course, God is at work onboarding us, the process that will take a lifetime, conforming us into the image of Jesus, helping us live out the realities that are already true of us in Christ. When Paul starts this, he starts with the church. We're going to talk about this in a second, but you know he's already devoted so much attention to the church, the one man, Jews and Gentiles, brought together in Christ by the Spirit. And in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4, he really describes this unity that's the outworking of the objective realities among us. And so this week we're going to see in verses 1 through 6 that each of us has a personal responsibility to maintain the unity in the church that God has created. And next week, in verses 7 through 16, we're going to see how we're each given gifts to promote the unity of the body. But this week, um, we're going to see this first section. And, and this is really simple. It's, it's actually a really simple sermon, really simple text. All I want you to know today is that you've got a responsibility to maintain the unity of the church. Each one of us has a responsibility. And we're going to see this by looking at two things. One, the character that leads to that unity and then the source of that unity. And so we see the character of the unity in verses 1 through 3. You probably picked it up as we heard some of those church words. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of a peace. So Paul urges them, not command them, he urges them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. This little section is kind of like, um, I know some of y'all have been going through the book of Romans, or just finished up the book of Romans in Sunday school, and this is kind of what Paul does in chapter 12 of Romans. He says, therefore, in view of God's mercies, I urge you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Here, Paul says, therefore, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. He's, with this word, therefore, he's taken up everything that he's described in verses 1 through 3 and kind of using it as the gasoline that he's about to dump on the fire of their lives. He wants all of that good stuff, all the blessings that are ours in Christ to fuel a life of obedience and faithfulness. And so he says, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. This calling is something Paul's already talked about. He talked about it in, in Ephesians 1.18. If you're a, a quick flipper, you can quickly flip there with me and see it in Ephesians 1.18. He says, he wanted them to know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the glorious riches of his inheritance in the saints? And when we studied that passage, I made the point that for a Christian, hope is really two things. One, hope is something we do. 
we hope in the future, we have this confident expectation, and we bring that to bear on the way we look at the world. We talked about the epidemic of hopelessness and how we need to recover the hope that is ours in Christ. But it's also something we have. It's an object. We, we possess a hope. Peter talks about the living hope that's stored up for us in heaven. Here again, Paul is talking about this future eternal inheritance that is ours in Christ. Eternal life with God forever. And in Ephesians 4, when we are urged to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, what Paul is trying to get the Ephesians and, and by extension, us to do is to remember who we are and what we've got in Christ. That we have an unshakable hope, an anchor in heaven, Jesus. And that is all that is ours. We hang on to him with everything we've got. Our hope is in him alone. And because of that, we are called to live up to that standard, to live like people who have an unshakable hope in heaven. It's like a child who wants to bring honor to his parents. I'm a first boy, so I either have a complex or and, and a, a godly desire to bring you know, honor and glory and reputation to my family. I want to make my parents proud. Or it's like an employee who brought into a new job wants to live up to all the expectations and values of those people who have created the world's seventh largest refiner and the second largest company by revenue in America. You want to live up to that. Paul says in the same way, as people who've been called to such a high calling, we ought to strive to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. See, the people he's writing to were pagans, Jews, who were dead in their trespasses and sins, but have now been made alive together with Christ. It would make no sense for them to go on living the way they used to live since of what God had done for them in Jesus. They're called to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. Now, surely this calling had already cost them something. And I don't know if you have experienced this in your Christian life. But when you start to identify with Jesus and try to live your life his way, there's sometimes some conflict. And I don't know if this had cost them any personal friendships. You know, when they left worship at the pagan temple or the Jewish synagogue together together with other Christians, maybe it cost them some friends, some business relationships, maybe it made things awkward around the dinner table. But whatever it was, it was clear. Paul is calling them to live differently. To leave behind the customs and attitudes and behaviors of their previous life and to live in a manner that was worthy of the new calling they had received in Christ. And in verses 2 through 3, Paul identifies five traits that characterize this new way of living. He says it's all about humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. Now, as Christians, we see these five things, and we recognize them as positive without even blinking. Of course, humility is good. Of course, gentleness is good. Of course, patience is good. Bearing with one another in love, that's great. Maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. These are all things that we aspire to and strive for. But in ancient Ephesus and the ancient world in general, um, those five things weren't thought as highly as we think of them. In fact, the ancient philosophers of virtue didn't see humility as a good thing at all. In fact, they saw it as a character defect. Epictetus, and I looked up, that's how you say it. Epictetus defined humility as actually the top 
characteristic of qualities that should be avoided. And the ancient historian Josephus, uh, he, he talked about it as the quality that defined a weak person, um, the obsquiescence of a slave to his master. That's humility. And yet here Paul has it listed as the first in his list. Gentleness fared a little better. Aristotle, um, he's like the father of ethics in the, in the Western world. And the way he viewed the virtues, and we look at these as virtues today, the way he viewed the virtues was as a spectrum. And the virtue, a virtue was something that was right in the middle. It wasn't too hot, it wasn't too cold, it was just right. Aristotle saw gentleness as the mean or the middle on the spectrum between being angry all the time and never getting angry at all. It's just like, just right, not too hot, not too cold. Maybe what Jesus would have called lukewarm. So in the ancient world, these traits weren't viewed as virtues at all. They were sort of looked on questionably. But in the Christian life, Paul says these characteristics are unmistakable. They are essential. They are the qualities that each of us should strive for as we try to live out our lives in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've received. And the reason for that is because they are the traits that are found in Jesus himself. In fact, in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, and you might want to write that down. You can look it up later. I'll just read it now. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When Jesus defines himself, when he throws some qualities out there that he wants people to really know about him, there's gentleness. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And of course, Paul says in Philippians 2.8 that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. So when Paul starts talking about the onboarding process, us becoming who we already are in Christ, the things he wants us to know are there are some traits that aren't present in you by nature, that you need to take on. Gentleness, humility, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You see, instead of maintaining their own way, instead of aggressively asserting their opinions and preferences, Paul called on the Ephesians to be humble, to do what he said in Philippians 2.3, to, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Ooh, that's humility. Regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Instead of flying off the handle over every minor inconvenience, and, you know, maybe you've been guilty of putting your foot in your mouth and then worrying if somebody's going to think about that and obsess over it and you've got to go back and make things right. Well, you should. But on the other end, should that become the place where we fly off the handle and, and freak out? I don't think so. Instead, what Paul is saying is don't make mountains out of molehills. Instead, be gentle. Respond appropriately in every situation. Allow the same gentleness that was present in Jesus to receive the people that he saw. They were, they were sheep without a shepherd. And he had compassion on them. You know, for the religious, self-righteous elite, he had some pretty harsh words. You ever notice that? Uh, the, the well have no need of a physician. 
you know, the, you're like the blind leading the blind. We talked about last week them being whitewashed tombs who on the outside looked great, but inside they were rotten corpses. Jesus had harsh words for the people who felt like they had it all together. But he was gentle with broken people. Paul says you too should be gentle with one another. You should be patient. Maybe your Bible says long-suffering. The image there is having a long fuse, that it takes a lot before you explode. Uh, in fact, the same word is used to describe the attitude of a, a people who were trapped by siege inside their city, but planted turnips because they believed they'd have the opportunity to eat them. That's the kind of attitude Paul's talking about with patience, to believing that something is possible and just holding out, being patient with a long fuse, not flying off the handle. And so you take these three, I, I think of them as virtues, they're attitudes, they're definitely different than what comes next with bearing with one another in love and maintaining the unity of spirit and the body of peace. But there are these things, these character qualities that are in a person. And you think about the environment where those things would be useful. The situations that must have been stewing in the church for Paul to list these things as the very first exhortation. He's going to have three chapters of exhortations, but the first thing he wants them to do is walk worthy of the calling to which they've been called in humility, gentleness, and patience. I mean, there must have been some conflict simmering just under the surface. You know, Paul's probably seen it in church after church after church where Jews and Gentiles who in their previous life had been pretty suspicious of one another. Um, the Jews thought of the pagans as godless atheists, barbarians, and the pagans thought of Jews as stuck up and off to themselves. And it's hard to, you know, fathom that maybe they didn't by accident smuggle some of those prejudices into the church. When Paul looked at him, he knew that just under the surface, just under the thin veneer of Christianity, they were monsters, <laughs> yet to be onboarded into all it meant to take on the character of Christ. So Paul called them to be humble and gentle and patient. And you think about those things, and, and they are almost an impossible ideal. I mean, we don't have to be Jews and pagans coming together in a church to understand how volatile human relationships can be. Uh, we do. We stick our feet in our mouths Sometimes we say things that we wish we could take back. We have mannerisms that we're not aware of, and they rub people the wrong way. We live in a small town. Many people here know each other and have 50 years sometimes of backstory. We know what it means to be annoyed and bothered by people. It's hard enough running into some of them at HEV. You mean I also got to be nice to them at church? You know, this is the reality of the Christian life. People are difficult. And I'm one of them. I'm, I'm one of the most difficult people there is. Paul, are you serious? I got to be gentle, humble, patient. Well, it's important to know that, yeah, I mean, in ourselves, these traits are impossible to produce. If you're hoping to be able to act gently or humbly or patiently just out of your own strength, you know from experience you're in for something else entirely. You're going to get tired, and eventually you've held it in long enough, but it's going to burst. But Paul says in other places that this isn't on us anyway. These aren't actually products that we produce. There's something else. Paul says in Galatians 5.22 that the fruit of the Spirit 
is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So, okay, let me get this straight. I'm called to live in a manner worthy of the calling, to take on the character of Jesus. Part of that means adopting some new attitudes and virtues that direct all of my behavior. Prime among them are humility, gentleness, and patience, the things that I just don't have in myself. So God, you might pray, if you want me to act humbly and gently and patiently with all the difficult people in my life, you're going to have to help me. And that's what Paul says he does. That by walking in the Spirit, by, in a minute, we're going to talk about focusing on God more than people. Those things that seem so foreign to us, the attitudes and virtues that we can't produce on our own, somehow show up in us. Because day by day, moment by moment, we are being onboarded, or the Bible words, sanctified, conformed into the image of Jesus, so that the character that He lived out is produced in us by His Spirit to the glory of God. So yeah, it's a high bar. Humility, gentleness, patience. We can't produce it in ourselves, but Paul says God can produce it in you. But there's a catch. Just because we don't produce it doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue it. It's not let go and let God. It's strive. It's walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Paul says it this way in the parallel passage in Colossians, Colossians 3.12. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. In other words, I like the way one commentator said it. He said, the pursuit of this character will be the result of conscious effort on our parts. So there's a way of saying, okay, I hear what Brad said on Sunday. That was a great sermon, probably the best he's ever preached. He said that I need to take on the character of Jesus, and it's God's work. He's going to do it. So I just need to sit back and watch as fruit develops and grows. No. On the other hand, Paul says, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. The idea, you know, of taking off one garment and putting on another, there's an active part to this, that we pursue this character as a result of conscious effort. That means day by day waking up and saying, Lord, you know what I'm going to face today. Help me be humble in my interactions with others. Help me be gentle in my responses to difficult people. Help me be patient when I want to fly off the handle. So that is the character that leads to unity. These three things taking root in our hearts, directing all of our behaviors. And the two behaviors that Paul lists are bearing with one another in love and eagerly maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, I think these are interesting. I think the first one, bearing with one another in love, is great. And if my mom had said it, she would have said, Hey, Brad, you need to put up with people because you love them. But Paul says, bear with one another in love. And I think it's a terrible challenge for Christians today to bear with one another in love. Uh, one of the things that makes it so difficult is that if you decide that anybody at our church is just too annoying to put up with anymore, you can take your letter and transfer it to another church with people who are far less annoying than us. 
You know, we have options that the first century Ephesians just didn't have. They didn't have First United Methodist and Central Baptist Church. They just had the Church of God in Ephesus. And they were stuck with those people. And so you know they had to put up with each other. I mean, they saw each other every week. Uh, they didn't have the option to go to a new place. So Paul says you need to bear with one another. Bear with them. To allow room. To tolerate annoying differences of opinions, personality quirks that just rub you the wrong way. Bear with each other. Why? Because you love each other. Peter says love covers a multitude of sins. And I've found that it's true. I'm much more likely to put up with some of the stuff my wife does than I'm likely to do with other people. I love her. And nothing's going to change that. And I'm stuck with her. I don't have options. She's my wife for the rest of life. So I've got to deal with it. Allow God to shape me. I just say that, but you guys, you already know. Erin does all the bearing in our relationship. She has to put up with me. But the reality of it is, is that when we love somebody, we are able to bear with them differently. We're able to say, hey, I know you. I care about you. I want what's best for you. I know that God's still onboarding you, helping you to become who you already are in Christ. And I know that those things that I don't like about you, you don't like about yourself. And so instead of pointing them out all the time and allowing them to get under my skin, I'm going to put up with you and tolerate it because you're a work in progress just like I am. And one day we'll be complete and those annoying things won't be present anymore. Paul says bear with one another in love. But it's all driving towards this last one. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. Now this unity is clearly something that is already present in the church. Paul doesn't say eager to produce unity, to stir up unity from among yourselves. Uh, he says maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. And Paul's talked about this unity over and over and over throughout the letter. He's talked about us being united to Christ. He's talked about Jew and Gentile being united in one body, being built up into a building for a dwelling place in God's Spirit. He even says in Ephesians chapter 3 that this is the mystery, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the unity Paul is talking about, a Spirit-created reality that is present whether we feel it or not. And so Paul says we should eagerly maintain that unity in the bond of peace. Now this bond of peace is actually a play on words. In verse 1, Paul calls himself a prisoner of the Lord. And the, the, the word there, the noun, is desmios, one who is bound. And here in verse 3, he says you ought to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. Desmos, same Greek word. The idea, you, you may not know this, but the prison systems in the first century Roman Empire were not great. Um, you were basically um, at the just mercy of your friends. And Philippians is a thank you note because the Philippians sent Paul a gift to s provide for him in prison. Um, Paul was chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. They took it in shifts, three eight-hour shifts, because... You know, each guy could only put up with so much of Paul talking about Jesus. And so they had to get on this rotation system where they could move. But the idea is, here's Paul, you know, writing this letter. 
and a few feet from him, chained up as a Roman guard. When Paul says he wants us to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace, he's saying, hey, in the same way that I'm bound up with this guard, I want you guys to be bound up to each other in the Spirit by peace. Peace should rule over all your relationships with each other. You know, the absence of conflict and the presence of this holistic fellowship that we ought to feel something together because we're bound together in peace. That there is a peace, Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That this ought to be the defining characteristics of our fellowship as a church. That when people walk in here, there's no presence of division whatsoever, not simmering under the surface. Instead, the unity that God has created by His Spirit is being, uh, what would you say, eagerly maintained in the bond of peace. That's the goal, to be maintained in the bond of peace. So that is the character that produces this unity. But here is the source of the unity. Verses 4 through 6, Paul says, There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Again, this oneness idea, this unity that Paul outlines in these three verses is nothing new. We've just seen it, united with Christ, united with each other in the church. Um, the Gentiles, fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. But what Paul does in verses 4 through 6, and he does it by repetition, is force anybody who tuned out from the public reading of this letter to get glued back in. Seven times he says one. One, 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 one. One spirit, one body, just as there's one hope of the call that you've been called to. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. One, 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 one. Now you know seven is the biblical number of completion. So maybe Paul's trying to draw their attention to the complete unity, the complete oneness that is theirs in God. But he structures these seven ones almost in like a three-point heading. I don't know if you noticed, but it follows what we've been talking about on Wednesday night in our study through the Baptist faith and message. It follows the persons of the Godhead, the Spirit, the Son, the Father. You know, we've seen that there is one God, one true living, one tr living and true God who reveals himself to us in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you think about that, your brain will melt. But if you just pause for a second, you kind of get the idea that Paul is, is trying to make. So there is a unity within God. There's one God. But there's also this beautiful diversity that God reveals to us. We'll never comprehend it, never understand it, never explain it in precision. But what we can say is God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God and three persons. And so though there's one God, there are three persons. There's this um, diversity, multiplicity within God. In the same way, it's true for us. There's one body. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2.16 where he talks about Jew and Gentile being made one body in Christ talks about it when he says that the Spirit has united us into a dwelling place for himself. There's one calling that we've received from God. Your future destiny is no different than mine. 
we're all going to be there, gathered around the throne, singing praises to God. The Spirit, of course, affects all that. He makes it happen. Then there's one Lord. That's God the Son. Jesus, the one Paul says in Ephesians 1.15, that as soon as he heard about the Ephesians' faith and the Lord Jesus Christ, he started thanking God for them, and he hadn't stopped since. They believe in Jesus. He's the one in Ephesians 2, Paul says, by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith in Jesus, that's the one faith. Each of us is saved in exactly the same way, by placing our trust and confidence in Jesus. And each of us is united to Christ in our public profession of faith in Him, in our baptism. Paul says in Romans 6 that um, we've been buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. There's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. And finally, Paul draws our attention again to God the Father, who is the God of all, over all, through all, and in all. And this Father, of course, is uniting us together into a family, manifesting to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places what He's doing in us. That His big plans for the world are to unite all things in Christ. But He's beginning right here with us, taking people from different backgrounds, bringing them together in Jesus to form one new church where unity reigns. In other words, what Paul is doing in this one body, one spirit, one hope to which you've been called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, he's drawing our attention to the comprehensive unity that already exists in the church. It existed when you got saved. It existed when you entered in. Now it's up to us to eagerly maintain that unity and to enjoy it by pursuing this transformed character. And so as Paul turns this corner into Ephesians 4 through 6, Everything we're going to see from here is following on from us learning to walk in a way that lives up to who God has already made us to be. And it starts right here with each of us bearing our responsibility to pursue and maintain the unity that God's already created in the church. And I've been thinking about this. This, this is totally easy to apply. I mean, already you've been writing down zealously, taking notes, and I'm sure the Spirit's been speaking to you. Areas in your life, in our church, in our world, where, man, you know somebody who needs to hear this. But there are three points that I've really been thinking about as I'm trying to apply it to myself. And the first is this. Since all this is true, that I need to develop this kind of character that will allow me to maintain the unity, the spirit, and the bond of peace, I'm going to need to take some personal ownership of maintaining unity in the church. We need to take personal ownership of maintaining unity in the church. What I mean by that is kind of what I started off our service with. You know, we do live in a divided and polarized world. Um, the, the division that's out there, all, all kind of divisions, you know them all. I don't have to rehearse any of them. Uh, those divisions are the dominant lens through which people view the world through an us and them attitude. And when that's the environment that we're living in every day, it's being brought into our homes through newspapers and social media and TV, whatever, uh, it's easy to sort of just sit back and accept that. That division is just the name of the game. We just have to deal with it. And then, when it starts to show up in the church, 
we're sort of at peace with it. That's just a fact of it. We'll just avoid it. Let's be non-confrontational and just try to hope that it all goes away. But if I'm supposed to eagerly maintain the unity and the spirit and the bond of peace, hoping it goes away and that the problem solves itself is probably not living up to the standard God would have me live up to. I need to take personal ownership of maintaining unity in the church. That means refusing to, me personally, refusing to harbor bitterness when somebody puts their foot in their mouth and says something that hurts my feelings. Refusing to harbor animosity towards others. Instead, you could follow, if you're looking for an alternative, follow Jesus' words in Matthew 18, 15. If your brother or your sister sins against you, go and tell them their fault between you and them alone. If they listen to you, you've gained your brother. What a startling idea. To actively pursue unity by forgiving each other, by highlighting, hey, this happened, and I love you, and I, I don't want this to come between us anymore. Can we find a resolution to this situation? That's what personal ownership for maintaining the unity of the Spirit looks like. It's, you know, putting on those big boy pants, tracking down the person that you know has got something against you, and burying the hatchet, covering over faults, forgiving as you've been forgiven. Uh, it means personally sacrificing your preferences. Paul talks about it in Romans 15, which Romans 14 and 15 are difficult if you want to stay in your own world and not care about other people. You've got to deal with Romans 14 and 15. Romans 15, Paul says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Not a suggestion. We should. We have an obligation to. We're bound to do that. And the crazy part is, he says, we who are strong. In the context, he's talking about people who can discern that there really is no such thing as clean foods and unclean foods anymore. That because Jesus has come and fulfilled the law, Paul says in Romans, that Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes, that nobody's saved by the works of the law, so clean and unclean food means nothing. Eat shrimp, eat bacon, eat bacon-wrapped shrimp, you know, do it. But Paul says that in context of Rome, there were some people who had issue with that. And maybe because of their former life in Judaism, they couldn't quite stomach seeing their brothers and sisters in Christ just haphazardly eating that kind of food. And so Paul looks at the people who know the truth, the strong people, the people who understand the implications of the gospel, and says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. He says, if you really love a person, you won't take advantage of all that liberty that you've got in Christ. Instead, you'll lay down your rights. You'll consider others as more valuable than yourselves. That's what it means to take personal ownership of maintaining unity in the church. It means sacrifice. It means giving up our rights. And I've got a hard time with that, just to be honest with you. I like my rights. I like my freedoms. I want to do things my way. And I want everybody else to adjust. 
But Paul says we ought to take personal responsibility for maintaining unity in the church. It depends on me and on you. Each of us doing our part to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Following from that, it's obvious that if I'm going to take personal ownership of the unity of the Spirit in our church, then I need to beware of the attitudes and behaviors that are in me that disturb that unity. You know, we're all blind to our character flaws and quirks. We don't understand how the things we do affect other people. But if we're going to pursue unity in the body, we need to get aware. We need to develop. I, I despise it. They have a thing called the EQ, the emotional quotient. Are you aware of how you carry yourself and how you interact with other people? Do you have an emotional awareness? I feel like I am an emotionally unaware a lot of times. I don't understand how the things I do impact other people. But if I'm going to maintain unity, then I need to develop some awareness. I need to see that maybe instead of humility and gentleness and patience, actually in me there's a lot of pride and arrogance. There's a lot of assertiveness, making sure I get my own way. And a lot of impatient expectations of people to do what I want them to do when I want them to do it. And if I'm going to take personal responsibility for unity, then I need to beware of that. I need to know that that is maybe my natural inclinations, that I'm going to struggle with pride and arrogance. And so I always need to be on the lookout for it. So beware of those attitudes. How are you going to get that awareness? Well, Paul would tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So you want to get aware about things in your life that maybe disrupt unity in your family, at work, or in the church. Read Scripture. Jumps out to me almost every day some blaring sin in my life. Open up God's Word. I'm just trying to get filled up for the day, Lord. Instead, He tears me down and shows me those things in my life that I, I've seen a thousand times, but they're still present. Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 before he said that about the Scriptures. He said that in the, in the, in the last days, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Maybe you're studying through 2 Timothy one morning, and you come on this list, and the Lord points out to you pride and arrogance, Maybe disobedience to your parents. These are the things that you need to be aware of. Things that disrupt unity everywhere you go. They're sins, is what they are. They bring death and destruction every place they're present. Left unchecked in the church, they'll tear it apart. Like Achan. After the battle of Jericho, taking back plunder for himself hiding it discreetly in his tent, thinking, hey, this isn't, nobody's going to know about this. Something for me. But at the next battle, it shows up. There's sin in the camp. 
So each of us taking personal responsibility, becoming aware of those things that are present within us that destroy the unity of the body and asking God to onboard us quickly so that those things don't stay present too long. And finally, being aware of those things means that you'll pursue a transformed character by focusing less on others and more on God. Less on others, more on God. After all, the source of unity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God's the one who creates unity. So, the idea here, I think, is if I'm always worried about all those other people and all the ways they're trying to disrupt my unity, then I'm going to find opportunities to point out their flaws, to get bitter at myself for allowing them to bring me down or whatever. But instead, I just need to let my eyes gently rise. Stop looking so much about what's going on around me. Focus on Jesus. I mean, if you do that, if you focus on God and how good He's been to you in pouring out grace on you that you don't deserve, and giving you new life in Jesus, I mean, you focus on that, all the things people do to you, they don't seem as big and as important. You know what you've received from Him, and so you're willing to share it with others. You give love, you give grace, you give forgiveness, you give mercy, you give compassion. Because you've received that from Him, you're able to give it to others. That's the idea. Get your eyes off of others and more on God. It's kind of like C.S. Lewis's classic book, The Screwtape Letters. I don't know if you've ever read it, um, but the idea is basically one senior demon giving advice to his nephew who has just received his first assignment to torment and torture a, you know, unknowing Christian. And it's, it's humorous because the demons never win. And they're trying to always find out how to out-scheme God, and they never can. But early on, the, uh, the elder demon tells his nephew that the real key to getting a person distracted and off focus and therefore drifting away from God is to make them notice in other people all the little annoying things they do. And so he brings up, for example, the way his mother serves tea. He says, hey, maybe you ought to try to get him to focus how she puts the sugar cube in the cup and pours the tea in such a frustrating and annoying way. And, and maybe you know that. You have these little pet peeves, we call them, that just rub you the wrong way. And don't you find that those tend to be the things that cause you so much heartache? Those little things. But if you just focus on God, those pet peeves and those minor annoyances won't make as much of a deal, won't be as much of a deal. So you'll be able to fill your heart with what God has done, pursuing the transformed character by focusing on Him and then letting that flow to the people around you. That's how each of us lives up to that responsibility to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And I believe it'll be like the oil on Aaron's head. When people see that we love each other, like that wonderful song says, they'll know we're Christians by our love. It'll be obvious that there is something unique and different. And I'm telling you, y'all know I want to reach lost people. That's my desire. That's what I'm a, I'm a pastor because I want to see people's lives transformed by Jesus. And I can't figure it out. What techniques are useful for that? And it's hit me 
This is the technique. This is the strategy for reaching lost people. Inviting them to participate in a community of people who love each other despite their flaws, who are willing to put up with those annoying things that they do, that other people tell them, hey, you're really annoying. Did you know that? But here they find a welcoming family who loves them and encourages them and pushes them on to be better. I think if we'll become that, man, the city's never seen anything like it. It'll transform the world. Will you pray with me that that's what God does in us? Let's do it.